This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. And just fell in love with these crazy bohemian paint-spattered people. Hello and welcome to another episode of Live Through That, the companion podcast to my book of the same name where I look at influential 90s musicians and where they are today. I'm your host, Mike Hipple, and on this podcast, we'll dig deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of the artists I feature in that book, as well as some artists I love and respect. Today's guest is the British singer-songwriter author Carol Decker. Her band, Tapau, broke big in the United States with the hit single Heart and Soul and broke even bigger worldwide with massive hits like China in Your Hand and Valentine. I worked with her back in 2018 for my book 80s Redux, and she was so fun to work with, charismatic and so full of energy it's contagious. Today, Carol tells us about finding her way and the road to becoming a singer. People often ask me, how did I get singing? And whilst as a, a child, I had always been able to sing and I was sort of a slightly precocious um, Shirley Temple character when I was young, you know, I'd tap dance and sing. And my mum said I'd sing on the bus and and tap dance on the counter of my grandma's shop and stuff. And, you know, people would give me money probably to shut up and stop and go away, that kind of thing. But I kept on doing it. But I never really considered singing to be a career, even though I loved it, enjoyed it. People would always comment if I sang along to the radio, wow, you have a great voice, or you can harmonize so quickly with everything. How do you do that? You know. So I went through quite um a traditional educational process. Um and we have an exam over here in the UK, which is called the Eleven Plus. Now um the eleven plus got you into a grammar school so a grammar school is like free education but on the on par with what we call over here in the UK private school I think you might call it public school in the states so that's people with money you know who can put their kids through Ivy League sort of stuff so if you pass this 11 plus you're 11 when you take it you get into one of those great schools and I did so you know and my brother who's two years younger than me he got into the boys grammar school so we both passed these exams and our parents were like super proud and and we weren't very well off. So that means we we're going to get this great education without having to fund it. So I got quickly funneled into quite a sort of an academic um, schooling. And I'm not academic at all. I just had this sort of lucky day <laughs> on the exam day. <laughs> I was forever floundering in that school with the maths and the biology, physics and chemistry and stuff. And I was in the drama club and I liked and I liked art and I was in the choir 
and I was always singing anything musical going on we had a, a really good um great facilities you know we had a stage and a, dra a drama room and everything but again there were more sort of accomplishments you know hobbies our school was very much oriented toward um maths physics biology the sciences you know trying to our, our headmistress was like um I think she was a forerunner for Margaret Thatcher. She thought girls could do anything they wanted, but she was she was a scientist. So, you know, we were all sort of pushed in that direction. So went to that school, didn't really know what to do with myself, left school at 18. I was in, in and out, didn't go to uni, in and out of dead end jobs, bars, you know, um, shops, all sorts of things. I, I even worked in a butchery department in a supermarket and um my job was to pull lamb's kidneys out of the carcasses and put them in little kind of polystyrene trays and wrap, weigh them and wrap them. <laughs> that was thrilling. And um, so finally, um, at the grand old age of like 21, I I was on the dole, what we call an unemployment, it was called dole then. And there were various uh, government schemes. One was called YTS, which was a youth training scheme. And um, I was put forward for it um, by somebody who worked in the job centre and it was basically helping the art team um, work in one of our more famous museums over here. It's the Ironbridge Gorge Museum. So in Ironbridge in Shropshire, there's this huge um, bridge made of iron. I think it was an Isambard Kingdom Brunel Bridge. And so there's a whole uh, museum around that. So I end up working, you know, on this youth training scheme and assisting the art team and just fell in love with these crazy bohemian paint spattered people who were just so different from the very smart studious academic girls I'd gone to, to school with you know and as that came to a close I decided to dust the cobwebs off my my RA level portfolio and I'd always kept my hand in sort of doing incredibly bad sketches and decided with another friend who was on the scheme to at age 22 to apply for art school go back into full-time education so I went to the Wakeman School of Art which is still there in Shrewsbury it's a fantastic art school and somehow blagged my way onto the foundation course so I'm 22 by now and um, in that environment I just again was just rubbing shoulders with these incredibly free-thinking different kind of people you know we were doing photography fine art printing um i was doing fabric design all sorts of things and i was in a student house and i dumped my boyfriend and just you know i was, I was having this sort of crazy life this rebirth age 22 and um or again always singing along to the radio that was playing in the studio when we were all painting and sketching and and people were joking like you know um can you just stop annoying the rest of us and go and join a band or something people were cracking jokes like that and uh and then someone said actually seriously you have a great voice i'm going to a party at the weekend um you should come with me because my friend julian's going he has a band they need a singer they've lost their singer so i go to this party and i meet this guy I get introduced this guy called julian ward and i go and audition for his band um and i get the job and we are rehearsing in a freezing cold garage. So we were the ultimate garage band um, in a town called Ludlow, which is about 20 miles away from Shrewsbury, still in um, Shropshire. And um, we start gigging locally, mainly covers, you know, mainly covers, but we were writing on the side. 
and it's not long before we start getting quite a good local following and the nearest biggest city to us was Birmingham which is in the middle of the country so we're trying to get gigs in Birmingham the bigger clubs and back in those days record companies would have um uh, regional scout offices so you know that you, hopefully you try and get the Birmingham record company reps to come and see you at your your gigs and stuff and we managed to get sessions on the bigger stations in our area so um we do a session for Beacon Radio which is in Wolverhampton BRMB Radio which was in Birmingham and you know they'd say oh, a brand new band here's four songs from and we'd call the lasers at the time and then there was a big local tv station there back then it's closed down now called Pebble Mill and so we got to do a few think things were shot out of there then some quite good pop shows we got so we got a, a good local following and then Ronnie Rogers so for any of you to pow diehard to pow fans who know a bit about the band's history I formed to pow with Ronnie Rogers and I met Ronnie he is from Shrewsbury that's his hometown and he had another local band called the Cats and they were kind of our rivals in terms of popularity you know so one day uh, we both get booked to support a big DJ. So over here in the UK, um, one of our biggest stations is called Radio One, BBC Radio One. And it's, you know, and particularly back then, it was the only pop station, really. So there was a big 80s DJ who I still work with called Gary Davis. And um, he was doing a big show in um, a farm. And I love saying this because it's the only time you can get to say it on air is young farmers balls is what they're called. <laughs> so we play these young farmers balls. So Gary Davis is the, the the main event. Everyone's coming to see him because he presents, you know, Top of the Pops, our big TV show. And and we, the lasers and the cats, are his support. So I meet Ronnie and we really fancy each other. And then I poach him from his band, uh, much to their chagrin. I wasn't very popular. And then Ronnie and I are both in my band, The Lasers, and we get a flat together and we're living together. And we then leave The Lasers after a while and decide to focus on writing and recording, which we were getting quite good at. So my dad lends us some money. Um, it's only like a grand or something, but it was a lot of money to us. And we got some home recording equipment and a new keyboard. And we just focused on that. And we managed to get some London management. They got us a, a small publishing deal. It's just, by this time, it's like 1986, um, with MCA. And MCA gave us five grand, which seemed a fortune to us. And so we were still able to stay at home and focus. And then finally, so I'm condensing like um, years and years of really hard work. Because when we took off, everybody thought we were an overnight success, but we weren't. It's like you're talking like four years of grind. Finally, um, we get a showcase gig in front of Virgin Records through our new management or London management. So we're up and down the motorway all the time. We live like three and a half hours away from London, you know. No no uh, YouTube or internet back then. You had to just get your ass down to London if you wanted anyone to take any notice. So we do a showcase gig um, of four or five songs that we'd written and we get our deal. And then... In, the, in America, you'll know us for Heart and Soul, which is our first big international hit. But across in the UK and Europe, we had many more hits and, and a handful of hit albums. So that was the pivotal moment in my life. Um, being unemployed, going just to the dole office, because you had to, it's called signing on. You had to rock up and show them that you were trying to get work 
or they take your money away from you, you know. And then when you go there, they sort of go, oh, there's a new course you need to go on. You're like, oh, God, no, I just want to stay at home and keep the money, you know. So this woman said, you know, I want you to go along to this. If I hadn't have gone on that youth training scheme in the museum, I wouldn't have ended up in art school. And I wondered, would not have realised that music could be my path, my way. And I literally found myself because I didn't know who I was until that point I really didn't I knew I was clever I knew I was bright I knew I couldn't stand a tedious conventional routine life but I didn't know what the answer was and I found the answer The Lasers was the band we were in with Julian so we couldn't really kind of take that name when we split away so Ronnie and I were um writing away and um we again sort of geographically it's kind of important tell you what is a little geography lesson for all you folks get a get a world map out so um about 60 miles south of shrewsbury is a little town which is in wales called monmouth and in monmouth it's one of the most famous residential recording studios in the world it's i think it's like 50 years old now every massive star you can lay your name to has recorded there and so the six degrees of separation that will bring us around to Roy Thomas Baker, who we did our first two albums with, he produced Bohemian Rhapsody there with Queen. So that's how important that studio is. We, I met the cousin of the owner, who was a sound engineer, and I was dating him before I met Ronnie, kept in touch with him. And uh, he's, I was doing backing vocals on someone else's album. That's how he met me. And he said, I do keep in touch, you know, so I did. And I sent him a tape and he handed it on to Kingsley, who owned Rockfield Studios, who just opened up a production arm to his company. And he started touting mine and Ronnie's um, tapes all around America and stuff whenever he had a trip, a trip out there because he was connected with absolutely everybody. So um, Ron and I, um, there was just the two of us and Kingsley used to say, oh, this is amazing. This is going to be big. We're talking big. We're talking America. So Ronnie and I called ourselves Talking America for a while, which is completely crap, I know. And I did, because, you know, I got to art school, I did the posters and stuff. We weren't gigging at the time, but I was doing, like, looking into the future going, and when we appear, you know, I was trying all different fonts and templates for Talking America. So we were Talking America for a while. And then after two years with Kingsley, he unfortunately, well, at the time, we felt tragically, just couldn't quite get us a deal. And he said, look, we've done two years together. You should move on. I should move on. But here, take your master's. It, it's a gift. It's been fun. Sorry, it didn't work out. So he gave us all our amazing masters that we recorded in Rockfield Studios in the, um, what they call the graveyard hours, you know, when the studio wasn't booked or used, we were allowed to use it. And, um, and it was songs like... Um, Oh, Valentine and Monkey House and uh, I Will Be With You, uh, songs like that, that were in that collection of songs that then got us our deal with MCA, you know. So everything uh, was a stepping stone, even though at the time when Kingsley said he, we had to part company, I remember crying when I put the phone down because I didn't know who, who else to turn to. Um, but things happen for a reason, don't they? And then... Um, we get our deal and we go to Wisconsin to a studio called Royal Recorders, which was a, a couple of hours out of Chicago, working with 
the amazing Roy Thomas Baker. We have the album in the can. We have the single selected, and we have um, uh, release dates, and we don't have a name because Ronnie and I had put. We weren't an organic band. Ronnie and I wrote the songs. Ronnie and I were signed to the label, and we put a bunch of guys around us that we'd then come to know. So, two guys from back home in Shropshire. So uh, Mick Chetwood on keyboards and Paul Jackson on bass, who we'd met on on the local scene. And then through our new management in London, we they were putting us in studios with good people and saying, I want you to try this guitarist, I want you to try this drummer. So we got Tim Burgess and Taj Waskowski from London. They were the guys, but we had we weren't an organic unit, you know, we hadn't grown together. So we didn't have a name. Um so I kept throwing names at them and and I'd say, anybody else got a name? You know, I'm just it's up for grabs and we could never agree on anything. So one day I, I was in my apartment and the telly was just sort of burbling away in the background and it was um, the original series of Star Trek. And I wasn't really paying attention. I think I was doing a bit of housework, tidying up, that kind of thing. It was just sort of blah, 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 to pow, blah, 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 to pow, to pow, you know, just kept hearing this word, kept popping out, popping out, popping out, very onomatopoeic. And I just liked it. So I turned around and waited for the credits to roll and saw how it was spelled, which was uh, T apostrophe P-A-U. And she was um, she was a rocking bird. She was, uh, you know, the uh, fe- the only female on the intergalactic council. This was a very big deal. So I put it to the band. And um, as I've often told the story, it was the, the name they hated the least. So we were to pow because we had a deadline coming up. So that's the story. <laughs> I, I love the series, totally love the series. Um, but I wasn't, you know, steeped in it like a Trekkie. But when we came over to America and we were promoting Heart and Soul, which was our big hit in the States, um, it did become a bit of a thing. And I, I sort of got in. I remember I was in New York doing a press junket and this chap comes in for his 15 minutes with me and opens up his briefcase, pulls out a pair of plastic ears, pointy plastic ears, Mr. Spock ears, and puts them on without referring to them at all. Uh, presses his, you know, little dictaphone tape recorder. We conduct the interview. He says, well, thank you for your time, Miss Decker. You know, wishing you every success. Takes his ears off and packs them away. Again, without referring to them. <laughs> and um, this used to happen a lot. I get a lot of fan mail from Star Trek fans in America who thought I was big into it, and, and I wasn't. I think they were slightly disappointed with me. Big thanks to Carol for taking the time to share her story. Carol still performs regularly and has released new music, including 2021's Guess Who's Sorry Now. I have a link to her website in the show notes where you can get the info on her latest shows. A friendly reminder that you can pick up a copy of the book, 80s Redux, which features Carol wherever you buy your books. And you can also get my book, Live Through That, on 90s Artists and get 15% off using the promo code PODCAST15 by ordering at the link on the podcast page. And if you like this show, please subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.